So we are live. Well, not live. live. I mean, we're live right now. <laughs> we're live. <laughs> but we got guests, uh, Mark Lowe, previously from Rockford Fallsgate. How you doing, Mark? Doing good. Thanks for the invite. And I wish everyone could see what I'm looking at right now. But at first, I thought he was in a shop of some sort. But turns out it's just his garage. Part one of his garage, because we'd spoken a little earlier. Got a bigger set out back, but nice little setup here. Even got a sewing machine the, the behind garage, it. The I garage do. is nicer than my yeah. shop, that's for sure. At least the floors are nicer, that's for damn sure. <laughs> Welcome, Mark. We uh, we have a bazillion questions, and I know a little bit about your history and timeline, but I am very interested to hear what got you into car audio, where, where you uh, got started, cut your teeth, how did you get into it? What, When did that happen and how did that happen? Well, it really happened much like all of us. It was a high school thing. So when I got my first car or truck per se, a Jeep CJ7 when I was 15, I was already into home audio a little bit. So I started playing with car stuff, knew nothing. Um, but we had a local dealer and they sold Kenwood. So started um, learning about that and, you know, putting my first amp in and six by nines and little tiny boxes and stuff like that and just caught the bug from there. So I kept doing that um, for about a year until once I turned 16, just into that, I had that Jeep for about a year and then I got a Trans Am uh, my junior year of high school. And that's really kind of when it really clicked and started doing a lot more stuff subwoofers and you know components and stuff like that so that would have been in like 1983 when i was doing that so i actually got my first car audio job um in 1984 when i was a junior in high school that's fun that's a good high school job it was a good high school job so it was a i'm from a little town in wyoming casper wyoming so they were, behind, you know, they're behind on everything, still are, I'm sure. So what we thought was pretty cool back then, you know, obviously compared to other areas of the country, you know, we were way behind. But probably the thing I remember most um, in my early career was when I got my fr the first Sony CD player in 1984 when that first came out. And I was the only one in town that had one because the the Sony dealer was where I was working and we only ordered one. So that was like the first DIN radio I had to put in because of course the Trans Am was a shaft um, dash setup. So it was pretty cool to have that CD player in 1984, but I quickly realized that there was no content. Yeah. I was, I was, I was about to say 1984. <laughs> what was the first CD you threw in that thing? Madonna, like a virgin. <laughs> 
This is so, part of Matt's trivia question. Matt, what was the first CD ever created? I was just trying to remember that. I'm like, this this used to be a trivia question I used to give. Was it was it like Springsteen? I think it's or Springsteen. Like Born in the USA yeah, or something. It's, it's definitely a USA type song. Yeah. Yeah. So I quickly realized that, you know, especially living in a smaller town, you know, about I don't know, ten percent of the stuff we wanted to listen to maybe was available on CD. Um, so that CD player actually was short-lived because it just drove me crazy because I couldn't listen to any of the content I wanted because it just wasn't available yet. So I worked at um, that first car audio store. It was a place called Harmony Car Stereo, and it was this one guy named Vern Miller that owned it. And, you know, I owe that guy a lot. He gave me, you know, my first break and taught me a lot. So the thing I remember is he showed me how to do these speakers on a mm-hmm. truck and he takes a grill and he puts it on the door panel and he traces it out and he's showing me how to use a razor knife to first cut the vinyl and then he shows me this really cool thing of using this you know box cutter and he uses it at an angle and it cuts the cardboard fiberboard stuff of the door panel like really easy i'm you know it was shocking to me how easy he was cutting it just by angling i'm like god this guy is like god He's amazing. So he had the door panels off, actually, and they were on the bench. And so he marks out the left one and marks out the right one. And you remember on those old trucks, the door panel was just flat. And, you know, the front of it looked basically like the back Mm -hmm. of it. So he marks out both of them and he cuts both holes on the bench and goes to put the door panels back on the car to mark the metal to cut it. And I'm just watching him. He puts the first one on driver's side, cuts the metal, and he's showing me how to cut it with tin snips and I, stuff I just had no idea about when I was 16 years mm-hmm. old. So then we finish the driver's side door and he goes over to the passenger door and snaps the door panel on. And I'm looking at him. My eyes are super big. I'm like, holy shit, something's not right here. He cut the hole in the back of the door instead of the front of the door. And so I'm not saying anything. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm glad he did that, not me. And I just watched him, and he, he didn't say a word. He just took the door panel off, marked, remarked it, cut another hole in the front to match the driver's side, put it back on, finished it, put the speakers in, and then he went over to his goodie box or per se of a bunch of speaker grills and i see him digging through them to try to find a matching set and he finds a set and then he mounts the um where he cut the wrong hole he mounts a speaker grill over it (laughs) and he goes to the back to the driver's side and he mounts another speaker grill on the back of that one so again i'm just just watching so the customer comes (laughs) in and he says to him Boy, we had a little bit of extra time in the shop today. We weren't real busy, so we we kind of played around with your truck, and we realized we could port your door, <laughs> and we got a lot better bass response out of it. And the customers thrilled to death. Thinks, oh my gosh, these guys spent some extra time there and charged me any money, and he was as happy as can be. <laughs> and I guess what I realized at that point, I thought about that almost through my entire career was, you know, we're all going to screw something Mm -hmm. up. 
it's not a question of if it's when and it, it's you know you really when you see how good you are it's how good you can fix your mistakes because mm-hmm. we're all going to make them and oh, you know yeah. that was that was a That's good a great lesson story. for me early in my career so i wonder how many cars how many cars are rolling around with uh, four, <laughs> four speaker grills and the front doors so that was my first job um i was there about a year and then i went i used to buy a lot of my product from another dealer in town called team electronics and they were a kenwood dealer and you know i had some of the higher end stuff this store i was at um you know mainly had sony and uh, back in that day, cricket, um, which was a you know a kind of like kind of looked like a fusion speaker per se because that had a green surround and stuff. But that those are kind of the main brands that we sold there. But I used to buy all my Kenwood stuff from this other place, Team Electronics. So I got to know the manager there real well, and so he offered me a job. And I think at Team or at Harmony, he was paying me like four bucks an hour or something back then. And team offered me like $7 an hour as a, you know, six, you know, I think I just turned 17. Maybe I'm like, God, this is, I'm, I'm really doing good. So I went and worked there, um, for about two years. I did installs for about a year of it. And then I uh, worked on the sales floor for about a year. So that was really my car audio career when I was in high school. Now in high school, did you work on like friends' cars and stuff like that just naturally? Yep. That's kind of how it started. Um, before I had that first job at Harmony, I did a lot of stuff in my garage, hacked some people's cars together, you know, like all of us, not really knowing what I was doing, but it was, you know, like all of us know, that's how you have to learn. So yeah, it's definitely how it started for me. I was constantly working on people's cars in high school just for free just to get experience yeah so that gets us up 87 88 ish maybe that, that gets I, I graduated in 85 and i stayed there um, in casper for one year so in 86 i moved to go to school in tucson starting to connect dots yeah here. so that brought you to arizona <laughs> yep so that brought me to arizona um i worked at a place called the specialists um, the owner there, was, his name was, is Charlie Weisel. He's, they're still in business and, you know, he's run a really good business for a long time. And, um, he definitely, you know, if I would say anybody probably in my career, he, he definitely, I owe a lot to him. And probably the reason why I say that is he just allowed me the freedom, um, to experiment and, um, you know, made sure we, you know, had the tools and, you know, spent the money we needed to in those early days. Um, and so we're in Tucson and the big dealer in Tucson at that point was classic car sounds. A guy named John Mangelli owned that. And if you go back to the NACA car audio days before I ask, John Mangelli won one of those first events and so they were the high-end um dealer in tucson by far back in in those mid 80s and they were so ahead of everybody 
they had a product that, you know, only the old school guys will even know what it is called Z-Box. So they were the very first people to do the car audio pod. You know, all of you know, a bunch of us think we invented the pod, but Z-Box was doing the pod before any of us. And there was a guy there and I, I could be wrong on his first name, but I believe his name was Eric Zimmerman. So that's where Z came from was Zimmerman and the car audio box, the pod. So they mainly focused on the exotics at that time. So they had a lot of stuff for Porsche, Ferrari, stuff like that. They didn't really focus on the common car or truck though, which ultimately really ended, kind of was their downfall. Cause you know, there's in Tucson, you know, there's only so many people driving exotic cars. But yeah, you know, for, they, for Matt, for Matt, they were the OG stealth box. Yeah. They like, were the o- way before there was ever a stealth box. <laughs> yeah, because they did subwoofers, they did um, door pods, kick panels. You know, they did all of it, and you know, it was so far ahead of its time. It was crazy. But the thing that they kind of did is they they were really tight lipped about everything to even their employees so they kind of had their special little shop where these z boxes were built but all their installers knew nothing about it you know all they did is install the pod like a stealth box Mm -hmm. but they didn't know how to build them or you know do any of that custom work they kept that really you know secretive so me being over at the specialists you know i was very intrigued by the Z box. And I knew nothing about fiberglass or anything like that. So I started playing around with, you know, just doing some stuff out of wood, you know, started doing it. And this sounds funny, but we mainly used Baltic birch and we didn't use MDF. You know, um, we just, you know, we thought it sound wise was better. Mm-hmm. And, but it was, <clears throat> as we noted, you know, try to, shape and sand, you know, birch like that is, is, you know, MDF is a superior material for that type of application. Mm-hmm. So we started experimenting with um, kitty hair and body filler and stuff like that, that, you know, really nobody in that area was doing anything like that at the time. And, you know, Tucson and, you know, Phoenix are, you know, especially back in those days were huge car audio, you know, Mecca areas um, with all the car audio manufacturers being in Phoenix. So we started playing with that and coming up with ways that we could build, you know, little door pods and stuff like that. And so we started to get some traction and started to take business away ultimately from classic car sounds. And it was because we could offer things that were different, you know, where they could only sell the Z box that they had in stock and we could build something custom, you know, especially for the Chevy truck or the Ford truck, you know, things they weren't offering. So that's kind of where the custom side really started for me was, um, in 1986 when I started the specialist. 1986. Mark, I was born in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> so that was um, kind of my introduction um, 
to Rockford Fosgate at that time. I knew a little bit about it when I was in Wyoming. One time a local rep came by and saw the stuff, but you know, it just, it wasn't very refined at that point. And I, we just did, I just didn't know that much about it. So at the specialist, we, we became a dealer. I think it was 1987 was the year that we became a Rockford dealer. And just being curious, you know, I got to know our sales manager from Rockford and our rep and, you know, just asked a lot of questions and, you know, everyone was so helpful back then. And that's around the time that Rockford started RTTI. So Ron Trout, which we all know, you know, he's the pioneer of car audio training, really. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, RTTI obviously stands for Rockford Technical Training Institute, but we all, you know, a lot of people always, call, you know, said it was really Ron Trout Technical <laughs> Training Institute. <laughs> um, so I get to go to one of Ron's classes back in 1987. And um, at that point, I had a CRX and I had two power 650s in it and two 18s, power 18s. Um, and a Sony 10 disc changer, of course. So I got to go to that RTTI session and, you know, for me, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is mind boggling, you know, learning about passive crossovers and, you know, actually constructing them instead of just hooking them, you know, the ins and outs up, you know, I thought, you know, at the time I thought, you know, Ron Trout was just the God of car audio, which he kind of was. And I just looked up to that guy so much. And um, I remember leaving that RTTI class and I'm driving back to Tucson and I'm like, you know what? That's going to be me. I'm going to get there. Love it. So, you know, he was a very motivating, you know, guy in my early days. Um, but back to that class, I remember being there and, um, um, Ron had a car. There was a tennis pro out of Las Vegas named Johnny Lane. And it was um, an IROC and it had a TV in it, which was super cool at that point. And it, I think it had 18s in it too, 15s or 18s. And um, again, just going, you know, seeing the, you know, a car at that stage, which was so far beyond anything I had seen at that point was super motivating to go back, you know, to our shop and, you know, want to apply some of the stuff that you saw and learned. What about the transition? What, when did you start at Rockford? So that was 87. Shortly, shortly after that RTTI class, I was maybe with the specialist another six months, but I really got to know a lot of the guys at Rockford. And there was a sales, the regional sales manager for the West Coast. His name was Scott Schmidt. And him and I became pretty good buddies. And we decided to open a store in Chandler. So we opened a store called Competition Audio Research. And he still worked at Rockford. And I ran this store and he would come and help after work. And that was the first build that I did for CES. So we built a Rockford Dodge Caravan that was um, the first CES car 1987 display. So that was my first CES build. 
So I stayed with um, doing that for about a year. And you know, I, I think I just kind of lost, um, I don't know if it was focus or really what to say, but it was, it was kind of hard because it was just me. Mm-hmm. You know, we were just small. So it was only me ever there. And I know I just kind of got burned out on it. So I ended up leaving that and I went back to the specialist. Charlie had always just, you know, courted me back and, you know, he just always treated me so good. And he told me if, if you come back, we'll get you a custom shop away from our retail shop and you can bring over whatever installers you want. And all you guys will do is high end. So that sounded pretty intriguing to me. So we opened this satellite specialist and, you know, all the other guys installers that we didn't bring over, you know, it it rubbed some of them wrong. So they called us the Hollywood crew. So, you know, whenever anything came to us, it was, Oh, it's going over to Hollywood. You know, because they thought, you know, that was the image we had that we were too good to be over there or something. So I ran that store for two more years. And that's when I got the contract to build 16 Rockford vans. Oh, geez. So we built the, you know, we hear the, you know, term Blastro van. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we built the original Blastro vans. 16 of them and that was the um the one we built for rock so what we did is rockford built one for each rep firm Mm -hmm. or had had one built for each rep firm and then we built one for them and that's back when kevin campbell was president um of rockford or vice president of sales i guess is actually i think was what his title was and we displayed that at CS in 80, 80, 89. So, so from there, you know, Rockford had been courting me at that point to come to work. Um, there was a regional sales manager at Rockford named Jerry Cave, which, you know, a lot of us know who Jerry is and, um, you know, he was just really, uh, again, someone who was really good to me early in my career. And he came to me one day or called me one day and said, hey, why don't you come up to Tempe and let me take you to lunch? So I came up to Tempe to go to Rockford and he took me to this little sports call bar called the Woodshed. And he started talking to me, he, just saying, hey, you know, you've done some really good um, builds. Um, we have RTTI, but we want to transition RTTI because at that point, RTTI was more of just technical. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you port a mm-hmm. box? How do you build a crossover? This is how you hook our amp up. But they were never doing actual hands-on right, right. fabrication stuff. So Jerry had this idea that they wanted to develop this program called Top Gun and only bring out the best installers you know, in the country and wanted to develop this fabrication program. And he thought I was the guy to do that. And I, you know, I remember looking at him and thinking, God, you know, Jerry, you know, (laughs) I've, I've, I've built some decent cars, but you know, there's a lot of really good installers out there. And, you know, I'm honored that you would, you know, think that of me, but I just don't know if I'm, I'm that guy, if I'm ready for that. And, you know, and he talked to me and just said, you know, Mark, I think you're the guy, you have the right 
um, attitude about it and stuff. So I left and went back to Tucson and actually thought about it for a couple of weeks because that was a huge transition for me. And that the specialists, you know, like I said, Charlie just treated me so mm -hmm. good. And I, I just felt, felt like I was on top of the world. Right, right. And so to, you know, pick up and um, go to a manufacturer's and as cool as that sounded at the time, it, it was kind of scary. At a lot the of same pressure. Time. A lot of pressure. And, you know, uh, and again, you know, I, I can't say, you know, I've never been a, a big, you know, person to, you know, tooting my own horn, right. you know, I've never, I've never been, been that type of mm -hmm. guy. And I, so for me, I thought, you know, you know, yeah, I've, I've built some stuff, but you know, that's a big challenge. So needless to say, I decided to do it. So I started at Rockford. Um, I think it was August, 1990. Mm -hmm. And my, um, you know, mission was, or was to develop this top gun program that they had already named, um, and had the concept for it, but there was no content. All they knew is they wanted to make an elite program where we would bring out 12 to 15 students or installers from across the U S at one time and by invitation only. So the first thing I did at Rockford was, you know, they didn't have a shop or a very efficient wood shop at all at that point. And they, I don't want to say they gave me, you know, just an open checkbook, but at that time, as a, you know, being 23 years old, I kind of felt like it was an open mm -hmm. checkbook, you know, being able to go out and at that time buy a, a Unisaw and, you know, high end woodworking mm -hmm. tools um, and stuff like that. So that was August. My first thing I had to do there, though, was build a vehicle for CES. So that was, so it would have been CS 91 when that was displayed and we built a Chevy Lumina van and it was built to go to Europe, to go to Europe. So it was called the Euro van. So that was my first vehicle that I displayed, um, at CS being an employee of Rockford. So we displayed that and then we, you know, I really just got to work on what the content was going to be of this top gun program because again you know we didn't have social media we didn't you know we had limited magazines even back you know in those early days so you don't really know what people are doing around the country right, right. You, you don't have a you know a good you know reference of what the ability is or what techniques people are using and stuff like that. So really what I did is I just went back and kind of studied how we built something, you know, and just went through the fundamentals and everything on the, you know, on the fundamentals of building something, whether it was an amp rack or a door pod or a tweeter pod or whatever it was, everything evolved around the jigsaw. You know, everything that was cut out was cut out with a jigsaw. Well, we all know the jigsaw is not the most accurate tool. And the problem in car audio, majority of the time is there's always a left and right. So trying to make mm -hmm, a left mm -hmm. pod match the right pod with a jigsaw mm -hmm. was near impossible. 
So I started doing a lot of research and just looking into woodworking in general. And that's when I came up with the whole router concept. Mm -hmm. And that's when, um, when I did the first Top Gun, that's when we introduced all the router jigs. Um, and just taught people how to manually build your first one with a jigsaw, sanding it, whatever, because that was the best we had. There were no lasers or CNCs or anything like mm -hmm. that. So we'd build our first template out of, you know, with a jigsaw. And then from there, we were teaching that, hey, you could copy that template. And not only for this car, but you could copy it and save it and use it on other builds down the road. Mm -hmm. And that's where the whole template jig thing really came from. And, you know, I, I guess if I'd hang my hat on anything for car audio, I'm pretty confident I was the guy that did that mm -hmm. um, from the beginning. And so we just kept refining the router process. And that's how we came up with stack jigs or jigs to build face plates around radios by just using straight edges and building a fence around it. And we started doing all that type of stuff. And I remember guys coming and just being blown away by the concept because mm -hmm. I can't think of one student in those early years who'd ever seen anything like it, you know? So our biggest battle back then, what we quickly saw or the sales managers quickly saw is how you're showing some really cool stuff to these guys. But the problem now is they're going back to their stores and telling the owners, we need a bunch of, we need a bunch of tools. <laughs> Cause they didn't have anything, especially a router. So the way Rockford combated it and it was genius at the time. And, you know, guys like Jerry cave, um, and people like that who were at Rockford in those early days had a great vision. And what they did is we did a couple top guns that were only for owners. That's very so smart. So we brought the owner. Yeah. We brought the owners of the stores out and we showed them all about efficiency. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's where everything kind of started to spark because, you know, they, everyone wanted to do car audio or wanted to do high end car audio back then, but no one was making any money doing mm -hmm. it. You know, the cars were in the bay forever. It was tying your guys up. You know, they'd much rather do a deck and two or a deck and four and make a lot more money. So we were able to show them and, you know, we really, you know, I really tried to dummy it down to where it wasn't even like that it had to be a, a speaker pod or anything, but a speaker adapter and just showing them, Hey, you know, you're building these adapters already. And, you know, your installer builds this adapter for this Ford pickup today. And next week, another Ford pickup comes in and your other installer needs to build adapters again. And they're starting from scratch every time. Mm -hmm. So that's how we show them that, hey, only one guy needs to build the first adapter. Then we save the template and we can keep doing it down the road. So we build this library of templates and ultimately all it does is save you guys time and you make more money. Mm -hmm. So we mainly in the beginning focused on just adapter plates, face plates for radios, 
that, you know, that was a big thing. Um, and the, the technique we came up with, with the strips to build the, you know, face plates for the radios, you know, they, they all dug that and they saw, Hey, all I have to do is buy a router and a flush trim bit. And we, you know, showed them really basic ways back then where you just use a trash can, mm-hmm. build a, you know, a square table, mount your router to it, flip it upside down and you have a router table. Mm-hmm. So we, we tried to make it really simple and cheap back in the early days mm-hmm. just, to, just to get the buy-in from the owners because if we if we didn't have the buy-in from the owners early on you know the installers were just struggling mm-hmm. you know it, most of them didn't have the money or they didn't have the support from the from the owners mm-hmm. to do these types of things so you know that was really the beginning of top gun and how that started do you remember who was in your first class? Was there anyone like notable? Drake Tops was, was in our <laughs> very first class. Awesome. So um, Greg and I have you know laughed about that for forever. So we want to you know so Top Gun continued for I don't know I probably ran that program for ten years, mm-hmm. and um, originally it was all domestic, and it was twelve to fifteen guys that would come to Rockford. We did two classes a month. And so I, you know, I, I feel Rockford, you know, in the early days, they were really the company that built custom car audio, you know, because they were spending the money to educate these people where there wasn't really any other manufacturers in the, in, you know, in 1990 doing anything like Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, others came along after that, but I think in the early days, you know, Rockford is really the pioneer of educating their installers, which, you know, I think, you know, ultimately built their brand, especially in the nineties, but I think they were, you know, really responsible for expanding the knowledge and the ability of the installers. Mm-hmm. For sure. hundred percent. The guy that I started out sweeping his floors was an early Top Gun graduate. And uh, yeah, it, that's how I got started was watching him. Yeah, I would love to see the, the, yes. the family tree of that whole network <laughs> and who attended and then how that how that influence trickled down. Honestly, like when you when you look back at all the main influences of car audio, I, I feel like they're all have a part of that program no i think i i think you're right on that i mean the the top gun program was huge for the industry you know i'm i'm blessed and honored to be part of that program and um to be part of that in the early days was was huge now now that we've got up to there what how did your role at rockford play out through the years like you started with the you know the demo car for ces and then into rtti and then obviously your responsibilities grew through the years. How did how did that come about? And... So, like I said, for, for about the first 10 years, mainly what I did is ran the training department. And um, tech support also migrated into my department, which only made sense. Because um, originally tech support was part of customer service. We migrated over to the RTTI area. So for the first 10 years, you know, it was really teaching classes. Um, we started to take 
more of that on the road with things like the early knowledge fest and stuff like that. And we started doing a lot of international stuff. So, you know, we, we, I, I think in those 10 years, I trained in 50 countries. Mm, wow. So travel all over. What was the coolest place you, you trained at? You know, that's a tough one because there, there's a lot of great ones, but I would say probably one of my coolest experience, probably two coolest experiences would be Germany was really cool. Um, the guys there were really into it and very knowledgeable in different ways. Um, so that was really go- cool. And South Africa was really cool. The guys down there, you know, at that time, again, just, you know, super motivated. Brett down there um, does a great jo- does a great job with the Rockford brand and still does. Mm-hmm. So th- those, are, those would be two of my trips that I would – you know, two areas I'd really remember, but I had, you know, I had some good guys work for me, um, through those years as well, you know, early on, um, the guy who helped me train Rick Jones. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Rick went on and, you know, did the Alma Gates truck and other things at PPI. Um, he's actually back at Rockford now, but Rick worked with me for a couple of years. We built, um, I think we did two CS vehicles together. We did a Chevy Dually and then a Chevy Impala that was pretty cool. And then after Rick moved on, that's when I actually, that's when I hired Brian Schmidt and Brian was in Utah at that point. It's kind of a funny story because Greg and Brian worked together at different stores at the hi-fi shop and they had a van together. I actually tried to hire Greg originally and um, not brian yeah brian's so bitter listening (laughs) (laughs) and that's just you know and it was more just i had a better relationship with greg yeah he was at the first rtti training yeah it was yeah exactly so training but yeah so the greg thing didn't work out he had a family a wife you know he just wasn't in a position to relocate at that point in his career So, um, that's when I hired Brian and moved Brian down from Utah and, you know, that's where it all started. And it's kind of funny story with Brian. You'll probably hate for me to share this, but that's when Brian had really long hair, (laughs) had the, you know, the, the really long mullet. Yeah. We've seen the pictures. And so the first day of work, I told him, I said, you know, dude, you need to step your game up. <laughs> we have to train people from all across the world. And, you know, I need you to have a little more professional appearance than the mullet. So I actually took him to a haircut place on lunch his first day. Didn't didn't Brian tell this story? I feel like Brian told this he, story. He may have. Oh, did he, I, I think so. There's a key component yeah. that I hope I yeah, hope you should I go back and listen to Brian's episode. I think he told the story because I, <laughs> if I know it, I feel like I've heard it. The way I kind of coaxed him into it was I took him to a lingerie. Yeah. Yes, I have haircut the place. Story. Brian told the story. <laughs> yeah, I remember this. Yeah. So th- that was his first day of work, and we got that mullet cut off, and um, <laughs> the rest, the rest is history from there. And um, that's awesome. I knew Brian and Greg pretty well. Um, 
Some of the dealers back then um, that were doing good business, the regionals would have us set up like a one-on-one -on -one training with them. And so we flew Brian and Greg out to RTTI and we actually, before I hired Brian and we did like a weekend long, you know, training with them, Rick Jones and I did that. So that, that's kind of how I got to know Brian and, um, better. And then, like I said, that's when we hired him at that point. So you met Brian through Greg initially? I met Brian through Greg. Okay. Yep. Purely through, um, I ask a contest. USAC. So, so when Brian started, if he's like an eight now, was he like a six or a five back then? Or, <laughs> you know, Brian came in with, <laughs> Brian came in, you know, he was young and, um, super motivated, you know, probably the guy that I can say was as crazy about it as I was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just wanted to learn and, you know, he had a lot of, good qualities, much like he still does. But, you know, we were, we, we were a really good match together and, you know, we were super motivated about, um, building the shop out better and, you know, just learning new things. And, um, so that, you know, I, I he came in pretty talented to begin with. So <laughs> I was just teasing. I was trying to, I was trying to get you to talk some shit. Well, you know, if it, like you said, if he, if he's a, if he's an eight now, he was probably a five and a half. <laughs> I'll remind him he's an eight now. You said eight. <laughs> so, at what year is this when Brian's in the mix? I believe Brian got in the mix in '96 or '97. Okay. You know, some of those years run together. I should probably have a better timeline than it's I hilarious. So when, I, when, when we have guests on all the time and they nail down years for like, that was 89. Like I can go through my life and I'm other than like the kids, my, or the, the year my kids were born. I don't, I don't know anything. 2007, 2006, <laughs> 2000. I have no idea what happened that year. It's you very know what impressive. helps me is that for a long time, for a long time, I would change cars every couple uh, so, of years. Yeah. So I would just, I would think about the story and I'd be like, what did I drive to work that day? And I'd be like, oh, it had to be within this two year period. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, and most of mine is based off um, demo builds we okay. did. Yep. So, you know, I can go back and know. So what was, the first... yeah, what was your first big demo build? The first big demo build was the Dodge Caravan for Rockford. And that was, you know, the biggest build. And that was at, on the CES floor in 88. Yeah. And, you know, back in the day, that was, was pretty cool. Cause I did a whole, I did a dash in it, center console, um, a Nintendo. <laughs> I bet you, I probably have 15, at least 15 CES builds on for Rockford. And I've probably done 30 to 35 builds for them. Wow. What was the most ex wow. exciting project you unveiled at CES in your career where you're like, I can't wait for people to see this. You know, they honestly, they all were kind of like that. Yeah. The, er the early days were so exciting because, you know, we would introduce, you know, plexi or aluminum trim or something and you know it would be the talk on the floor because there would be nothing else like that 
Um, so each year, you know, was, you know, just got more and more motivating. And, um, you know, in the, in the early days, and I, there, there wasn't a lot of competition, to be honest. I mean, most of the manufacturer builds in the 80s and early 90s were not that great. So, you know, if I go back and look at some of ours, they probably weren't that great either. But at the time that, you know, I think they were, were pretty good. You know, as the years went on, you know, you got to the mid nineties and stuff, every, you know, everyone up their game, mm-hmm. you know, Alpine was building some great cars. Um, you know, there's a guy out of Tucson named Bill Wyko and he owns a couple, uh, store down there, audio 2000. And he was building a lot of the Lanzar stuff and, um, he built some, you know, some pretty crazy stuff back for that day. So, you know, I think. I guess if I would say, you know, when it really started to pick up would be the mid nineties mm-hmm. when the talent really grew and there a lot better demo vehicles out there. Yeah. The mid nineties is when it really just exploded. And as, as the glass kind of came yep. onto the scene in a big way and with the, you know, between what Rockford was doing and what fish was doing and Carlson and like all of that stuff just blew up in that time period i'd say like probably 94 to 98 was just yep. this insane growth from everything was vinyl and acrylic and maybe some aluminum accents to everything has paint and yep. airbrushing and like just exactly the whole industry just exploded it was awesome no, it was you, a good time you, sorry you missed it matt <laughs> no when you want that's what got me into it that's what got me into it you know, going back to your question, Maddie, about, you know, how the fan, the tree worked and, you know, who was influenced and stuff, you know, that's one cool thing for me to feel I was part of, you know, because it, whether it was Jeremy Carlsness or Mark Fukuda, right. you know, all those guys, you know, I definitely spent time with all those yeah, they guys. They all mention and, you and, when it comes to like a great influence within the industry. So, you know, and it went both ways on that, especially with, with Mark, he, he showed me equally as many things as I showed him just different. You know, I remember teaching him the router stuff and for him, I, I remember it changing his game completely. The Blastro van that he built was really the first vehicle, the first big demo car that he built using all the router mm-hmm. techniques. Yeah. I feel like that's a big thing with education is like, so somebody who doesn't know how to use a router, they learn how to use a router and then they have the passion and drive to learn how to use it different than everyone else. Right. It's much like with CNC nowadays or laser. How can you use that technology different than everyone else to set you apart? Right. And I feel like if Akuda did that with the router, he just had that knack to use it differently than everyone else. Yep, for sure. Yeah, you get those that skill set, and then you learn exactly. to kind of ratchet yeah. it up a little. Exactly, and, ratchet it up. and it just keeps going from there. You know, I think that's you know one thing again that you know I always tried to focus on with my career at Rockford was I wasn't in it for me. I wasn't trying to pat Mark Lowe on the back. I was trying to build the industry, mm-hmm. and that's really what mattered to me was to educate the industry and get. The installers at the next level and you know to be part of that you know when i look back on my career i mean that's really the thing i'm most proud of is being part of those early days and 
and educating people. I mean, I remember, you know, all my classes, you know, my, you know, I'd always say, Hey, there, there are no secrets. I'm laying it all on the table. We're, we're not covering anything up with a black sheet. We're going to show you everything and all the techniques. And it's up to you guys, just like you said, Gary, to go out and expand on them. We're going to, you know, we're going to give you a solid foundation, which, you know, most of those guys didn't have back then. And so, you know, we, we focused on that foundation. First foundation was really how to do custom car audio and make money. That, that was the beginning of it because, you know, the owners, they didn't want, you know, a lot of them dabbled in it, but then they like didn't want to do it because it was tying their bays up and they weren't making any money. You know, that was really my pitch on the whole thing. Hey, this is how to do some custom work and make money. Mm -hmm. So that was a snapshot of me at Rockford from 90 to about through my RTTI days, which ran through the early 2000s. And then I really transitioned into product development at that point. And what, what drove that? Was RTTI slowing down or, or? In the early days, it was, you know, so much of it was driven just by engineers and, you know, Rockford, just like many companies were making mistakes on designing of amps, for example, where are the mounting holes? You know, how do you mount it? You know, they didn't think about things that, you know, if they made a 10 inch subwoofer and if it was a P1 versus a P2 or P3, they were using different size baskets. So you couldn't change a subwoofer because the basket was an eighth of an inch bigger or, or whatever. So that's how I really, how they promoted me into product development yeah, smart. was more from an, from an application mm -hmm. side. As we all know, you know, this, you got to be able to install the stuff mm -hmm. and it's got to be easy. And if it's not the, you know, the, people the installers use it, yeah. are just, won't, won't use yeah. it. So I did that for the last three or four years that I was at Rockford for that stint. So my, my first um, stint at Rockford was from 1990 to 2005. And 2005 is kind of when um, a lot of things fell apart at, at Rockford and just in the industry. And we ended up laying off over half the people. Mm. And, wow. and, you know, and fortunately and unfortunately at the time, I was part of that. I left Rockford in 2005, didn't do anything for about a year other than some side business. And that's when I, that's when I got into the laser and started doing a lot a lot more on CAD stuff. That's when I really got into SolidWorks and, you know, using a 2D program. I, at that time, I mainly used CorelDRAW. And I spent really that year just learning all that. And then after, so, and then in 2006, Rick Jones was actually at a car audio school called Mobile Dynamics. Mm -hmm. And... Rick called me one day and said, Hey, Tom Gazda, the owner of the Tempe location wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> I'll go to lunch with them. But, you know, I kind of viewed them as, mm, I, I don't know if that's what I want to do. Right. So I went to lunch with Tom and, um, you know, we kind of came up with a good plan. And so Tom hired me and I worked there for two years and developed you know, a, a similar Top Gun type mm -hmm. program that they did, that they didn't have. Um, and Rick and I worked together there for a while, and that was a, it was a good little in between. 
And then in 2008, um, Bill Jackson, the president of Rockford, contacted me and courted me to come back. So then I started again at Rockford in 2008. Hmm. And when they brought me back, it was originally um, to do some engineering support, you know, kind of like the role I was doing before I left, where working real closely with engineering on the product design and, of course, building some demo cars. So that's when we introduced the sound labs. Mm -hmm. So the first the first sound labs were, were Mercedes Sprinter vans and they had 1215s in it. Mm -hmm. And when I developed those, it was really about changing the experience. You know, the, uh, the demo had always been, oh, hey, let, you know, let's play these songs and you kind of, you know, do a song and it's, you know, it is what it is. And I wanted it to be more like a Disneyland experience where you shut the door and someone got in and there was a light show and the audio was automated and we came up with this um, cool concept where they had a punch out button. So if it was too loud, there was a big red button that they could hit to punch out and it would mute the audio. And we had a track that would come on that said, you just got punched out by Rockford Fosgate. <laughs> First two years back, we built two of those Sprinter vans. Um, and, you know, they, they were a huge success just because it was something different. It wasn't a demo car that you couldn't touch or get in. Um, I guess that's one thing, you know, going back to even the early days of my builds, I always wanted the builds, A, to be drivable and have the reps be able to drive them and not have them trailered. And B, I wanted them to be able to have people get inside them and touch them and you know, build them dur durable enough to where they could withstand that and be demoed, you know, all day long. You know, I think we probably made some compromises back in those days not to make stuff maybe as pretty as it could have been to make it more functional. Mm -hmm. So we had those two um, sound labs. And then the last van, the last thing I built for Rockford at demo wise what it was the Ford Transit. And we called that the mini sound lab. And that was a, basically like the Mercedes van concept. Mm -hmm. We got we got better at it, did better automation in it. But you know, those were something that I think at at the time was unlike any other demo car, because there was nothing else out there that you could, you know, push a button and say, "I want a rock track," and it would play a rock track, or "I want a rap or country or whatever." And you, the person who was demoing the vehicles could just push the button on the van and it would play that track. And probably the coolest thing about it was the experience was the same every time, you know, we were able to control, you know, much like a Disneyland ride. Control the environment. Go on yeah. Yep. So that, that, that was a pretty cool time frame. That, that got us to like 2012 at Rockford was, and that, and that was really, that was the last build I did for them. After that, I transitioned more into just purely engineer support. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the early days where we started to do some motorcycle audio. Yeah, the motorsports, yeah. Yep, started playing the side-by-sides. My goal was to really educate myself on technology. Mm -hmm. So we got a ferro arm so we could 
um, scan pieces. We transitioned that to a Creoform 3D scanner. You know, I think we were by far the first car audio people doing anything like that. And 3D CNC machining. So we would machine all the prototype parts to check fitment and things like that before we ever sent them out for any sort of tooling. So that was a, a few years. Um, again, I had another great guy work with me during that time frame, um, Lee Teebles, mm-hmm. which I brought in, which I brought in from Texas. And you know, Lee's a super talented guy. How'd you meet and, Lee? You know, he, I met Lee at, at CES, and I think that was 2012. I'm trying to remember what rep brought him over to me and just said, Hey, you should talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Lee kind of had his own store going and some other, and, you know, he kind of been around a little bit. And so, you know, I did a, basically an interview at CES with Lee and then went back to Phoenix and we talked some more and then I offered him a job and relocated him to Phoenix and the rest is from there. Yeah. Yep. No, and he was a huge asset to Rockford, a huge asset to me and my team. Um, again, you know, much like I say with whether it's Bakuda or anyone else, you know, I think I taught him a lot, but he taught me a mm-hmm. lot too. Well, those, and, so you know, that's the best type of personality right there. Those are always the people who are at the top is taking the information from the person who could be at the lowest totem pole, learning something from that person. And then using that, like, hey, they actually do that very well, right? And then utilizing that aspect within what you do. I mean, that's how we all grow and transform into something better. You know, that's always, you know, really been my stance on it is you can always learn. Mm -hmm. You know, you're never going to, you know, when you think you're the best, that's as good as you're ever going to be. Exactly. You know, you always have, and it won't last. And it won't last. It won't last. It won't last. <laughs> you know, so I've always been that guy that tried. I try. I always have tried to ex- extract whatever I can from somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, even if he is that low guy on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. I mean, a pretty funny story that happened a couple of years ago. I was building a new house. And I was putting some ceiling speakers in. And so we're not even. We don't even have furniture in the house yet. And I have the cable guy over. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, hooking up the cable and this guy's super annoying. And just (laughs) every time I'd go up, every time I was up on the ladder, getting ready to cut a speaker hole, he'd be, Hey, Mark, Hey, Mark. And he would, you know, want me to come look at something. And this guy's just driving me crazy. And so, you know, I'd asked him, I'm like, Hey, will you hook up this router for me or whatever it was? And I think it was a net gear Orby or something at the time. And he's like, ah, I probably can't do that. I haven't been to Orby school. And I'm just like, this guy's such an idiot. <laughs> just driving me crazy. So anyway, so I'm cutting this speaker hole in the ceiling and all the blowing insulation's falling on the ground. You know, so mm-hmm. he sees me, you know, picking it up and he's watching me as I'm doing a couple throughout the house. And he comes over to me, he goes, you know, I watched this thing on YouTube. And this guy was putting a ceiling speaker in and he took a piece of fiberglass insulation after he cut the drywall and he shoved it up against the blowing insulation and then none of it fell down. I'm looking at him, I'm like, shut the hell up. Just leave me alone. And so I'm talking to my wife at later that night and telling her, telling her the story. I'm like, ah, oh, that guy's a, it's just a moron. 
So I'm driving the next day to Home Depot and I'm thinking about what he said. And I'm like, you know what? I think he, I, I think he, he has something there. So sure enough, I go and I buy a little thing of fiberglass insulation at Home Depot and cut my next speaker hole and I shove it up in there into the blown in insulation. Nothing, virtually nothing falls on the ground. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like you said, that lowest guy yeah. on the totem pole. They can always teach times, you something and you always got to keep always, your mind open to that. Exactly. And, you know, when you don't, like you said, Gary, that's, that's the end that's and the you're end not going to be there very long. Yeah. So, so, um, that, like I said, that was, um, when, more when I got into the engineering support at Rockford, that's when we started doing the, the first kit we did was the Polaris razor kit. And Lee and I did that with virtually no engineering support at all that, you know, the engineers just weren't into it. You know, I think Rockford was gambling at that point and, you know, it, we didn't have a lot of support within the organization of doing these kits. So, you know, I remember telling Jake Broughton at the time, who was vice president of new products, we can do this. We can do it in the back. So that's when we figured out the ferro arm and, and the 3D machining. And we brought that whole Polaris original razor kit to market with Lee and I doing all the engineering to tooling. Mm -hmm. So, which was a pretty cool thing back then. Um, so I continued, um, you know, doing that for a few years at Rockford. Um, we got in, into the motorcycle kits and, you know, that kind of, a, you know, went crazy. And, you know, uh, probably one of the coolest products I think that I've ever come up with was the Harley 6x9 adapter. The baggers, you know, the biggest problem with putting speakers in the baggers was everyone had custom painted lids. And so if... If you bought an aftermarket lid, you had to have that painted to match. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was always a hard sell with the, with the owner of the bike. And I remember being at Sturgis one of the first years and seeing all this happening. And just being a simple car audio guy, you know, I'm like, well, there's a pretty easy solution. We can just do a grill on the front and a grill on the back that sandwich together. Mm -hmm. And that's really where that came from. Um, and I remember when we first, you know, started, can, you know, doing the concepts on that, we had zero buy-in within the, within the organization. And, you know, I remember, you know, people high up in the company and consultants we were using at the time coming and saying, there's no way that these dealers are going to cut these bag lids. And, you know, so we came up with the, you know, the really cool solution where there was a template that went on top of the lid so that you couldn't scratch the lid, showed you exactly where to drill the holes and where to cut. Everyone just bought into it after they saw it. And that was, you know, it was a huge, I think, change for the industry on the motorcycle side. And it's pretty cool. I ended up getting a design patent for that. So that's awesome. Nice. Is that the only design patent you have personally, or do you have like that, 30? <laughs> no, that, that is okay. the only design patent. It's probably naive. And, you know, if I look back at my career, you know, I probably should have, I probably should have made some different choices and not being at Rockford the whole time, I probably should have went somewhere else and expanded and, 
had I think I could have got more opportunity possibly. But to be honest, you know, Rockford treated me really well. I definitely, you know, I definitely bled Rockford bread and, you know, so I stayed there even though, you know, the money was never as good as it probably could have been elsewhere. But um, it, it was a good ride. And um, so that, needless to say, that is the only patent. I, you know, I probably should have approached other things along the way, you know, especially a lot of the router stuff that we did. But again, for me, it was more about educating the mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. You know, what it wasn't about, hey, Mark Lowe can develop this and get a patent on it. It was more, you know, I want to teach mm -hmm. everyone how to how to be better and how to make this industry better. And that that was really my focus and driving thing throughout my career was, uh, you know, not only about building Rockford, but it was about building the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, Gary, you know, you can see people that I, I don't know the guy that you swept the floor for, but, you know, he probably wasn't even a Rockford dealer. No, he oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You know, a lot of those guys, yeah, oh, you know, yeah. we taught, <clears throat> taught thousands of guys and, you know, some of them would go back and next thing you knew, they were, at a, you know, they were at an Orion dealer or alpine dealer or you know whatever so yeah and really my last part of rockford um i got promoted to director of product development in 2016. so for the last two years i was that was my role so all the project managers reported to me and basically you know we brought the napkin sketch to reality so that was a good couple years learned a lot um a lot of travel overseas. I mean, at least generally four trips to Asia a year. So one, one every quarter for a couple of weeks at a time. So I got to learn, That's got rough. to learn a lot about, you know, manufacturing and, you know, just capabilities, what, what can be done and what can't be done. You know, I, I think, you know, that if, if there's one downfall, being a car audio guy or a fabricator is, you know, we can build anything we want. You know, we're not restrained to uh, the way the tool pulls or how thick something is mm -hmm. because you're... We, we, yeah, when you have to figure out what a draft angle is, yeah. all of a sudden it's like, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, things change. Maybe, maybe my idea isn't as good. Exactly. So <laughs> um, that, that was a lot of good learning experience for me. What, what market taught you the most? Because you know how like we're in America and we just presume that we know a lot and we're the teachers, but obviously with you as a teacher in different markets, I'm sure there's times in which you're just like, wow, they know they're, they're way far light years ahead of where I thought they would be. You know, I would, I'd have to say a couple, um, like I mentioned early, earlier, Germany, uh, they had some really talented guys mm -hmm. over there. And we had some really, Rockford had some really good reps over there um, at the time that got us all around to the, you know, different dealers. So we learned, you know, we saw a lot and, you know, those guys, they have different constraints, you know, because the cars have to go through a lot more inspections mm -hmm. and stuff than we, than right, we do right, here. Right. They were really smart about integrating things and using factory mounting locations yeah, and stuff. You know, they were way better about that in, you know, in the earlier days than we were, I feel, as Americans, because we're just like, yeah, yeah we'll just, just drill a hole it, here. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, yeah, just just cut it. You know, it doesn't matter where 
you know you're saying the mini truck scene is not big <laughs> in germany yeah no mini trucks <laughs> that scene was not big so i you know i think that was a huge influence just from that perspective you know because they had a different look on it mm -hmm. um japan was was super educational and um exciting you know the, those guys were so into the car audio thing and huge rockford yeah. fans huge. like rockford in japan is a right. big deal yeah right? especially especially back in the 90s in the 90s it was huge and you know i remember going to japan but a lot of other countries and i mean we were treated you know they thought we were royals right and it's just like no nah, i'm just some car audio guy from wyoming <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I remember uh, we made a trip to South Africa, Mark Fakuda and I, and we actually went with Jerry Cave, who was the international sales manager at Rockford at that time. And uh, we went over to help a guy over there with his SPL vehicle and teach a couple seminars. And I remember we had a party. They had a party that we, I guess for us per se at the time, you know, where all the dealer dealers came and they had banners with our names on it. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, it was weird at the time, but you know, everyone's coming up and <laughs> wanting our autograph. Well, you're like Aerosmith and... over there. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were like, exactly at the time. So, you know, the, the international experience and trainings back in the day were huge. You know, and to be able to go do things like that with people like Mark and stuff, it, it really made that a fun time. It's like a legit life memory. Yeah, yeah for sure. Awesome. So what about now? What? Are, so, in 2000, so in 2018, um, you know, I'd been with Rockford for 25 plus years altogether. And you now I just decided it was, it was probably time for me to do something else. And... I decided that being retired would probably be pretty cool. So um, at 51, I retired. Wow. What is Mark Lowe doing it to take up his day? Using the passion that we all have for the car audio fabrication, really, I've just kind of turned that more into the home side. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily audio, which, you know, most of the things that all of us do, even on right. the car, is an audio. Right. You know, it's fabrication mm -hmm. stuff. There's just audio. Audio is just a byproduct nowadays. <laughs> you know, originally it was all about audio, but today it's more of a byproduct. So, you know, I've really, you know, just focused a lot more on my cabinet skills. And, you know, you know, it's been a big change for me just instead of using MDF or stuff like that, you know, now I've been doing a lot more stuff with, with wood and, you know, so learning more about, you know, stains and, you know, different types of finishes like that. So I've spent quite a bit of time doing that, um, you know, building out a, a cool shop that I could have at my house so that um, I could continue doing the stuff that I like to do. What's what's the uh, the thing that you're most proud of in your home right now that you've built that you're like, it was a lot of work, but it's it's badass. I know we, we built a really cool game room. We have a RV garage behind our house and we divided that in half. Um, half of it's my shop and half of it's a game room and it's a really cool vibe in there. We, you know, we kind of made it, you know, kind of an industrial, 
retro vibe in there with you know some really cool pop um, art stuff and you know that was a really cool build and then in the house i built uh we call it the lounge and it's kind of just a room that we you know play games in and drink in and i built some pretty cool stuff in there what's your go-to drink in the lounge you're sitting in your lounge in your favorite chair <laughs> what is the drink that you're asking for definitely tito soda okay we always try and ask yeah. each guest that so if we ever bump into bump into you in a social setting we can get you exactly what you, <laughs> yeah what you've asked for usually usually a vodka soda of some kind would be my would be my drink so those types of you know things around the house i've you know like i said i've built a pretty cool shop where um you know i have a cnc a laser you know saw stop all the all the necessary stuff and that's in my wood shop. And then the the garage I'm in now is kind of my clean area. And that's where that's where I do most of my CAD modeling. Um, that's where I have my form labs, 3D printer, my sewing machine. You know, yeah. so, so and that's where I that's where I tinker on um, motorcycles and jet skis and stuff like yeah, I'm that. I'm sorry we're not a video podcast, we're only audio, but beautiful shop. Only white cars, because I feel like I, I feel like I'm the same. I only do white cars. I don't know why. I just feel like they look <laughs> cleaner than color cars. I see two yeah, white horses well, in the background. Yeah, one's actually chalk. As I said, yeah, is it chalk? chalk yes, yeah, the chalk gray. Huh? Yep. So we have a chalk gray one and a white 911, and then I have a white Ford Raptor. Okay, so white, white only. White's in yeah. season. So that, that's been my go-to lately. So here's a question for you, because I, I jotted down some questions. So from a fabrication standpoint, I know you're in Arizona, and I know it gets hot as fuck in Arizona. So fabrication in hot climates, what tips and tricks do you have for me? Because we know cars get like 200 degrees in the summer. <laughs> Is yeah. there any special techniques or tricks that you do for hot climates you know i think a lot of that we've kind of learned through the years and probably mo a lot of the people doing it now have already learned from all of us who made mistakes mm -hmm. you know i think that i think some of the first stuff that we learned we couldn't use was hot glue because mm -hmm. you don't even need the gun <laughs> you, know? you just hold the stick in your hand you just hold the stick in your hand so the hot glue you know that that wasn't a good go-to spray glue you know, originally, you know, just use an aerosol type spray glue, you know, everything would stick fine initially, but mm -hmm. you'd come out after a warm day yeah. and all the vinyls, all the vinyls lifted. So we, you know, learned early on that you definitely got to use a good contact cement. What's your best contact cement? I'm trying to give something to everyone listening. So for the fabricators listening, what's the best contact cement for hot climate? Just a land on top adhesive. Okay, it's pretty standard the standard it's pretty pretty standard trim adhesive i mean i've always been the guy that preached red contact adhesive versus the yellow okay um and my reason on that was so you can see you know, it. i watched a bunch you can see it because i used to watch a bunch of guys in rtti in the early days and they they would spray it on but there wasn't any on there mm -hmm. there wasn't enough so it's like they weren't getting any adhesion mm -hmm. so then we switched to red it's like now you can see it okay. so yeah 
you know, once you know what you're doing, the red's not as important. But I think in the early days of, you know, someone learning, the red definitely makes it so you can see it. Okay, so favorite build of the 90s. This is a build that you saw that wasn't a Rockford product, that you saw competition, and you're like, that's executed pretty well. I'm pretty impressed. Kind of two different levels on that. Because, okay. I, you know, I, I, I definitely have to include Mark Fukuda in those days, for sure, whether it was his Blazer or the Blastro Van. Mm-hmm. But they were very Rockford-like. Right. I agree. You know, so um, the Alpine stuff, hands down. You know, there are a couple years I can think of. I think the year that we introduced the Dually, no, no, not the Dually, the Ford Ram, and we had a bunch of really cool fiberglass painted stuff in there and a bunch of aluminum. I think that's the year that Alpine had, that Jeremy did the, was it a Civic, maybe? That was Metro. Oh, right. it would have been uh, Yada. Well, Jeremy did the, the Civic with Metra, but the uh, Civic was Yado and Brownie. Okay. Yeah, that was that thing was insane. Like, it was so ahead yep. of its time with every inch of everything painted yep. glass and air. Yeah, that's the one. I'm, that's what I'm thinking of. That was the same, yeah, that was the same year that um, we did the Ram, and I think we, I, we each got a big trophy. I forget how they did it. I think we got, I don't remember if it was best of show or most unique or something. And then they got basically the same thing with different work because, because yeah. they were both, right. there was nothing even close to those two vehicles at that time. So, you know, that, that was, de- that's definitely one that stands out for sure. Yeah. I think that, I think that definitely pushed the the bar pretty good with all the, this is one of the first ones I remember seeing with the fiberglass inlay into a fiberglass inlay into a fiberglass inlay and it just stacked trim and trim. Yeah. I remember staring at it for a long time. Yeah. Super badass. I mean, you know, amazing for its time. It would be amazing today. I mean, you know, so that, that's definitely one that stands out to me. And in the best sounding car that you've ever sat in and listened to. You know, I'm probably not the best guy to answer that. Because we were we were we were less focused on that right. and more focused on the SPL. What you were talking about the tap out button in the vans that you guys built. What has anything tapped you out before? I mean, it, you know, some of Steve Mead stuff has been really loud for sure, um, and you know, aggressive. Unfortunately, I, I can't say anything is really you know, and, and that's probably not a good <laughs> thing to say. And, and, and I know I'm paying for it today and I'm further down in my life from a, from a hearing perspective. So, Hey, I made it, I made it through one of your demos without tapping out. I was damn close to hit the button. Though. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, the, the sound labs are kind of one of those things where we definitely could have pushed it further and they could have been louder. But, you know, we had to kind of put it to where it was like it was loud and it would make some people tap out. But, you know, it had to be to where, you know, because they were going to all sorts of different events. You know, the sound labs went to more non-car audio events than car audio. And, you know, a lot of people have never experienced anything close to that. So it was kind of a, a line we had to draw where it's like, okay, we want it loud. We want the experience to be really good, but we don't want to just scare these people away from it either. Because right. you don't give anybody a heart attack. Well, at the end of the day, we're trying to sell product. 
you know, we, we want them to leave. We want, you know, the goal was to leave with, hey, you know, Rockford's badass. We, we want to go buy that. And, you know, not just, oh, shit, it was so loud I couldn't even sit in there. So it was kind of like a fine line that we had to, you know, dial that thing in, you know. And it had to be able to do that every day on the road, you know, with no one working on it. So yeah, it couldn't be torn down, you know, every weekend and woofers replaced and stuff like that. It had to be, you know, no different than a race car. You know, you can make them go so fast and they're still reliable, or you, you know, get that extra five or 10 miles an hour or whatever it is. And then it's like, they break all the goddamn time. And then so. here's a question that we ask every guest and I'm very excited to see how you answer it because it can all go right. one of two ways, right? So your best demo track and tread lightly because you're, you're a Rockford guy. It could be an SPL track or it could be something that you're evaluating an audio system for its entirety. You answer it how, how you shall. Um, if you're evaluating an audio system for the first time, what song or two songs are you playing? You know, this sounds really bad, but I that was never my deal. You know, I, I always had guys who did that. <laughs> you know, I was, I, I was never the sound guy. You know, just being honest. You know, I, I was more about making it look cool, build it, you know, build a really good system and have it um be reliable and serviceable and you know i was never the guy that tuned it or did that stuff that was just really never my that's kind of when i just signed off and turned it over to whoever else it was at that time so i i, I really don't have a good answer but for even you after a long build <laughs> nobody's around you're sitting there you have a hot aux <laughs> and you're just trying to play some music you don't have one song that Mark Lowe is just going to slam on the aux. No, I, re I really don't. And that, it's kind of sad. It's, it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, I guess there were so many different songs, whether year by year, I can't even really think of anything that stands out. And I know that's weak sauce. <laughs> and it probably went completely opposite of what you thought it would go. Yeah, I was thinking um, you're either going to go sound quality or you're going to go SPL. Yeah, it was it was always more the loud SPL with vocals. <laughs> you know, some song that you know had a lot of bass but had you know good dynamic range. And it, I mean, I I could probably say something, but I'd probably say something that would just embarrass myself. So I'd rather just leave it at I don't. <laughs> Oh, that's part of the fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I, I don't have a good answer for that. We'll let him off the hook. Weak. Failed that question. So finally, who is your biggest influence amongst your career or influences? Who who made you you? Well, Ron Trout definitely is in that arena. You know, you know, if I had to say someone, you know, early on really motivated me, and I looked up to Ron Trout's the guy. Um, he was super motivating to me to be that guy um, when he, you know, when he used to run RTTI. And I remember once I started at Rockford um, and I became the director of RTTI, Ron was director of product, uh, was um, the director of new product development. And I remember we used to have to fill out a thing from HR and it was like, where do you see yourself in two years or 
something like that. And what I wrote was I want to be director of product development. Because again, I saw Ron's footsteps and kind of where he went. I'm like, that dude, he has it together. So he was super motivating to me from, from the car audio side. Definitely other people that, you know, were the ones that influenced me and brought me along um, that, you know, weren't from the fabrication side per se, like Ron, but um, Jerry Cave at Rockford, who was a regional sales manager at that time. He was the sales manager that would always come over and check on us. We would be working late, you know, as you know, and you guys all know, you know, the, the builds never go like you think, and you're there at midnight and beyond. And Jerry was always the guy that would come check and, you know, just see how you're doing and it always just be motivating, you know, cause he'd look at what you're building. He's like, Oh, that's really cool. And so he, he was a huge support for me through a lot of years too. If you, uh, if you had to put together like a team to build a car now, like for yourself, which, which guys would you grab? Wow. You know, there, there's so, there's so many good ones, you know, the talent level and the talent pool is, you know, higher than it's ever been. And the stuff people are building out there is just amazing. And for me to, you know, name somebody, I'd probably be missing a lot of people because I've really been, I, I've been out of it for four plus years at this point, almost Jeremy Carlson would be high on the list. You know, if I had a, an old Camaro or something, it would be going to him. Mm-hmm. Um, Gary, you know, you'd be high on the list too. No different than you would, Matt. Uh, you know, there's a it, it just, there's so many good guys out there. You know, if I was to build a team, it, it, it would be hard for me to choose who the best five were for sure. Yeah. You know, if I was to say, Hey, who's the one person, if I only get one, it would be Jeremy. Mm-hmm. I think we all would agree with that. Yeah. I think that's a pretty solid choice. <laughs> it, 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 Jeremy would definitely be the one. If I yeah. if I only got only got one guy, that would be my go-to. He's a he's a good dude and uh, insanely talented and continues to push yep. all of us. He he pushes the limit. And I think that pushes. Yep, for else, sure. Which is awesome. No, it's you know Jeremy and I always laugh because he came to a Top Gun that we taught at the Lake of the Ozarks. Um, back in, you know, early, I think he was only a year or two into his career. And, you know, he's told me many times, he's like, you know, when I went back after you show me the router stuff, it changed my life. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Literally. So, um, you know, so Jeremy and I go way, way back and, um, you know, that guy is just taking everything and, you know, just went crazy and expanded, Done so much for the industry, you know, not only the car audio industry, but just the fabrication industry for sure. So, and you know, I, I think the thing I like admire about Jeremy so much is he's a lot like me where, you know, he always wants to try new technology. You know, I love, I love it to see that he's on the Korea forum, you know, 3d scanning bandwagon that I was on, um, you know, that. They're 3D printing so much stuff that they're 3D machining. You know, they're just next level for sure. My favorite quote, Mark, is the master has failed at everything the beginners never tried. Because it's so true. You have to try everything. You have to fail to learn to get better. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, like I said, my, 
line I guess I'd always use is not how good you are, it's how good you can fix what you fucked up. Yeah. Because you know, some of my some of my best builds or coolest thing on my builds were mistakes. Yeah. You know, I did something I did something wrong and it turned into this really cool thing that might have only taken an hour or two. I remember Brian Schmidt and I used to laugh because we'd put hours and hours into whether it's machining, you know, these aluminum battery bus bars. You know, I was really into the battery bus bars for a few years on some of the suburbans we did. And, you know, they were crazy for the days. And we would spend a month building all these bus bars. And then we would do like, I remember, I think it was on the dually. I did a stacked acrylic trim piece with black and red acrylic and glued it together and then chamfered the edge and polished it. And, and it was like an afterthought. And oh my God, that's the most popular thing. And everyone talked about it. I'm just like, what about the month I spent back here in the, on the battery bus? Oh, those are cool. But that acrylic piece is really cool. So, you know, it's, you know, that's one thing I learned. It's like, you know, sometimes it's the simplest things that stand out to people. Right. You know, you can, you can bust your tail on a lot of different things and you know put a whole bunch of effort and time into mm -hmm. it and then it's like one little thing that most times i think you guys would agree with me it's kind of an afterthought it's like oh i should put this trim piece on this or you know do whatever and it's like oh that's the thing that gets talked about right and everyone's grab everyone's gravitating towards so I, I had a car like that that we had probably collectively spent i mean if it was one dude it probably would have been three months on this entire car and it got done to having to build just a little block off plate underneath the rear deck when the trunk closes. It just needed about two inches of trim. And it was one of those things that knocked it out in like maybe two and a half hours after this, you know, multi-month build. And I got done with it. I'm like, that's one of the coolest things I have ever built. And it was just in an afternoon and done and upholstered and bolted into the car. And it's I wish all things were that easy, and sometimes you have to build the rest of it. It could be that, or a wrong hole cut in a door, and all of a sudden you're venting speakers, and the customers are late. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I ported doors, ported doors. I mean, I have a you know similar story on the Chevy Impala that Rick Jones and I built, um, which was back in I don't know ninety four or ninety five CES, and we spent I don't know a, a, a month plus building you know, the trunk out and it had, you know, all these painted pieces and, you know, really complex fiberglass pieces. And the thing that stood out was I built these right angle brackets that held a trim piece that covered the hole for the trunk hinges. So when you would open the trunk, you wouldn't see through the slot or we didn't have to use snow brushes. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with this simple thing, you know, just an angle bracket with a piece of vinyl on it, basically. And that was the thing at CES that year that everyone was like, oh, my God, that is so cool. I'm like, <laughs> really? <laughs> that's what that's what you're talking about. I have six weeks worth of sanding in this trunk. And <laughs> you like the one little yeah, vinyl you like piece. The, you like the piece of angle iron with a piece of vinyl on it. So, well, guys, this is. Um, yeah, it was fun. Again, I, I, you know, I feel honored that you included me on 
um, this list of, you know, people that, you know, you guys said you have, you've already done this with. I mean, that list is, wow, top-notch people. And, you know, so, to, you know, for me to be on that list, I feel honored. And, um, you know, I really appreciate you guys reaching out to me to include me in on it. Yeah, and it's very fun because, like, well, the more definitely. stories we get from you, it fills in this, like, timeline of important car audio history. So as each person tells their story, it literally fills in this immaculate family tree of car audio, if you will. And it's it's something I feel like we've never physically known as an industry to see each person's perspective where they were at in you know the United States during this crazy culture that's exploded and become what it is right. now. Yeah, you know, I, you know, a lot of times I always kind of referred to myself as the ghostwriter. You know, as I was kind of the guy behind the scenes, I never wanted, you know, I never tried to be famous or wanted the glory of it. So, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people, they don't even know who Mark Lowe is. You know, he was just, you know, they know more about, oh, that Rockford van or that Rockford dually or whatever. That was really cool. But you know, I was never really that guy that, you know, wanted to autograph it or have the glory of it. I was more about, you know, like I said, building the industry and, you know, I was loyal to Rockford. It was, you know, Hey, I want to build the best vehicle I can for them. Now, how many, uh, how many manufacturers had a home shop or workshop like you guys had? Were you guys the only people that you know of that had that detailed efficient type of shop i think in the early in the early 90s for sure i think i've never been to it but from what i've seen you know alpine had some nice stuff for a while too you know they had a good run at it you know i think most of the other manufacturers the majority of them didn't do it themselves mm-hmm. you know they outsourced it to different builders you know or different shops and you know most manufacturers didn't do it i mean i i, I think the the two that stand out are Rockford and Alpine. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, they they were the ones that were doing it in-house. They're the ones that had the talented guys and um, were trying to push the industry and for better cars, you know, no different than today. You know, if we say, oh, Jeremy, you know, he's built this and it's really motivating, you know, for us back in those days. And, you know, I know the guys at Alpine feel the same. It's like it was motivating for us to push the envelope and for people you know and it what i loved about you know you know trying to be on the edge of that was you know coming back the next year and seeing how much better people got Mm -hmm. or how they expanded on it you know like you said gary you know taking the router and what else can you do with it and you know just the builds in general you know and people you know seeing something and then you know putting their own twist on it and you know that was always exciting for me to see what the next thing was Mm -hmm. yeah it was fun to watch people uh dream and try to outdo each other and just try to make the most extreme thing that they could minus maybe that year or two when guys got to putting 50 or 60 tvs in one car (laughs) that's about i think the the point where it went yeah out of control for sure side mirror sun visors review mirror tail lights i there's tvs everywhere i think it was uh excel maybe one year had like a a mitsubishi eclipse or something in their booth and it was like 
literally the A pillars had like six TVs down each one, and I was just like, "Yep, we jumped yep. the shark. This was this was this is the one. This is what happened." It's time right to, My apologies to whoever built yeah, that. Time company. to do something different. So yeah, no, it's. I think we all see that through the years of you know whether it was people get on the you know the, on the painted bandwagon or. You know, it, and it's just evolved, you know, everything was carpet or ozite, as we used to call it back in the 80s. And, you know, then it transitioned to vinyl or tweed. You know, then it's, you know, we started adding some plexi and aluminum and then painted stuff. And it's like, you know, just like you say with the TVs, people will like want too much. It's like, okay, not every single thing needs to be painted. It looks like a hot tub, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or whatever. You know, it's, you know, or too much vinyl or too many TVs, (laughs) you know, and I think that's what, you know, guys like Jeremy, you know, have done such a good job with is it's a good mix of different materials, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, you know, that's something we always tried to preach at Rockford was, you know, just coming up with a good design and use, you know, pushing it and using different materials. Yeah. The best fabricators have creative restraint. For sure. This was fun. I appreciate you sincerely for doing the podcast with us. It was absolutely excellent to hear your side of your journey and how you got into this and how you became you and how you've influenced these unbelievably other influences in our industry. And (laughs) my friend, you are, we talked about the bottom of the totem pole. You are near the top of the totem pole, my friend. (laughs) Well, that's, that's an honor to, you know, for you to say that. And, you know, it's like I said, it's just an honor to, for you guys to think of me to be in this elite group. And, um, you know, it it was a, it was a good run. Uh, It was a great journey through my years at Rockford and owe the world to them mainly just because they gave me the opportunity. Mm -hmm. All the router stuff and all those types of techniques those only happened because I was given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, when, when I was in the install bay busting my tail, you don't have time to think about, well, what's a better way of mm-hmm. making this trim piece other than using my jigsaw. You're like, I just got to get it done. So I have the next mm-hmm. car. And, you know, so for me at, you know, given that opportunity at Rockford, um, that's really what allowed me to do that. I, I was no better than, any of the other good installers, I was probably not as good, but I was given a great opportunity and I was able to take that and try to focus on the stuff that I thought would make all the installers better. Yeah, I think it, 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 it did work. It worked well. <laughs> so just being able to, you know, slow down and, you know, think about, you know, the basic steps of, of the build is simple as it seems today, back, you know, in the eighties, you know, it was the jigsaw period. Hey, some dude had to invent the wheel and then everything from there got a little easier Mm. for everybody else. So we definitely appreciate uh, you taking that opportunity and basically starting this wheel rolling down the road of. Well, you know, it's it's been exciting um, for me too um, to see, you know, what people have done with it, to see, you know, how successful Brian Schmidt's become, you know, over a lot of the you know, things that we did back in the nineties, mm-hmm. quite honestly, you know, he's taken it and put his own spin on it and developed new stuff as well. When you go back to it, so much of it is still eliminating the jigsaw for these guys. Cause you know, more and more guys today, as you guys know, have CNCs and lasers and, 
So we're not worrying about how we're going to cut the piece out. You know, we're going to cut it on the laser, the CNC, and we have a perfect template. Um, but the guys that don't have that, you know, that's where it's been so positive with the way Brian has supported those guys, because, you know, with his templates and stuff like that, that allows those guys to be able to produce nice parts and repetitive parts mm -hmm. and not, you know, have a lot of expensive tools or a lot of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, so hats off to him, you know, he's done a good job taking that and making it mainstream. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine if there was no Mark Lowe, how different our industry would have been. So for that, again, I thank you. <laughs> well, you know, wow. Just for you to say that's huge. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I don't, I'm not that guy that feels that I was, you know, responsible for it or, you know, again, I think I was blessed and I was given an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think there's a hundred other people at the time, if they would have been given the opportunity, they probably could have done it too. So, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate I was given the opportunity and, um, we were able to do what we did for the industry because for me, you know, and I've repeated myself a bunch of times on it, the industry was the most important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I was never that guy that was going to hide how things were done and secretive because the, the techniques are the techniques, but if you don't have the design eye, yeah. You know, that, that makes a difference yeah, you for know? sure. Just because you not just because you know how to use a CNC or a, or a router jig doesn't it. Yeah. You still, you still have to have the execution to compete. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, that, you know, and that's something that's just hard, you know, that's the hard part to teach. Mm -hmm. you, you know, some people get good influences and they learn and they're around good people and they, you know, they get better, but. You know, there's people that are just blessed with that ability, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all designers and artists. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that side of it, you know, you're not going to build the coolest cars. Mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can have all the tools in the world and all the techniques, but if you don't have the design side, it, it's going to be a, a, a good build, but it's not going to be the epic build. Well put. Yeah. We'll end on that. Again, I appreciate you so much for coming on. Again, just, I know you're probably the most humble person in car audio, but understand how much car audio appreciates Mark Lowe. Thank you again, guys. Again, it was just an honor to be invited to this. And I, I appreciate the time that you guys spent with me. For sure. For sure. Thank you. All right. And I